This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, it's Mark Tui with you again this afternoon, and what a pleasure to talk with you today. We've got uh, we've got some fun topics coming up. Why, why, when it rains in Vancouver, do my groceries get more expensive in Toronto? It just doesn't make any sense, because, I mean, it only rains, what, 175, 200, 300 days a year in Vancouver. It's not like, you know, they have any reason to get used to it. We'll get to the bottom of that later in the program. We'll bring you up to date on what's happening on the Public uh, Emergency uh, Public Order Emergency Commission in Ottawa. The uh, Commissioner of the RCMP, Brenda Lucky, is uh, testifying today. We'll bring you some of her words later in the show. And uh, perhaps we will dive into what we can learn from space when it comes to improving health care. We'll see if we've got the guests for that. If not, uh, we'll bring you something else, and we'll save that uh, in our hip pocket for another day. But I love coming back to health care because we are not going to fix health care, as I have said before many times, by just pouring more money in it. First of all, you know, eventually we are going to run out of money before we run out of demand for health care. So, like, it's a, it's a never-ending big hole in the ground that will just suck everything into it if we just keep doing more and more of the same. So that's not really a long-term option. Clearly, it needs more money in the short term because, uh, you know, we've, we can't just do wholesale changes very quickly. But we need some imaginative, innovative, creative ideas. And uh, we need to keep throwing things up on the whiteboard. Big brainstorming, national session. That's your job as a citizen. That's my job as a citizen of Canada. Come up with some good ideas, share them, get the conversation going. Because God knows... Our doctors and nurses and healthcare administrators and CEOs of hospitals and associations and ministers and politics, they're unable to do that because they all have very narrow scopes and very narrow interests. Even if they have a depth of knowledge in what they do in the system, they don't necessarily know what anybody else does in the system, and they've never been in another system. So... It's up to us to come up with the creativity. Anyway, uh, there was an interesting conversation on uh, one iHeartRadio program earlier today, and uh, uh, it's the Jerry Agar show carried on a number of iHeartRadio stations. And they were talking about a coroner's inquest that was supposed to get underway. I don't I think it was delayed again. And this was a coroner's inquest into the death of an 18-year-old man in Toronto nine years ago. Uh, the, the man in question's name is Sammy Yatim. You will be familiar with the case because it became an international uh, flashpoint. Sam Yatim was 18 years old. He was in downtown Toronto on a Toronto streetcar on the Dundas Line in Dundas Square on the 27th of July in 2013. And he was going through something a mental health crisis of some sort. He was at the back of the streetcar. He was armed with a switchblade knife, which he pulled out, and he threatened uh, some passengers on the streetcar. He exposed himself to some women on the streetcar. It caused a commotion. People were in fear of their lives. He took a swing at one of the women. The streetcar driver stopped the streetcar, opened the doors. Everybody raced off, leaving Sammy Yatim in the midst of some mental health issue alone on the streetcar. The police were called. The police attended very quickly. And after that, we got to see it on video, cell phone videos from the crowd. It was a busy place. 
Everybody watched the police arrive. Everybody watched within seconds of the first uh, police car arriving. Constable James Fursillo, a Toronto Police Service officer, uh, go to the front door of the streetcar, draw his weapon, pointed at Sammy Yatim, who was standing inside the streetcar, and start screaming at him to drop the knife, drop the knife, drop the knife. Within seconds of arrival, Forsillo fires the first shots, I think three of them, and then pauses. Yatim drops to the floor. And then Forsillo, inexplicably, many seconds later, fires more shots at the prostate body of Yatim. Yatim dies in the episode, and a bunch of investigations ensue. All of this on video, all of this for the world to see. Forsillo, the police officer, was charged with second-degree murder and attempted murder. And in a very weird, you know, legal argument, uh, he, was he was found not guilty of, of murder with regard to the first series of shots that he fired, because the jury decided, and I think they were right, that, you know, we can't know what was happening in Frasillo's mind, so it's arguably possible that he thought his life was in danger, although people watching the video couldn't understand how. So they acquitted him of the murder charge. But on the second series of shots, the Crown argued he was clearly trying to kill him because, it, it, kill Yatim, because Yatim was no longer a threat. He was lying face down on the floor of the streetcar. The jury found him guilty of that. He was sentenced to uh, six years in prison. He served two. He's out. And now a coroner's inquest will investigate the death. Uh, Mark Mendelson, the CTV crime specialist, a former homicide detective in Toronto, who's investigated lots of murders, was speaking with Jerry Agar on the Jerry Agar show and asked, what could we possibly stand to learn from a coroner's inquest? This took place over nine years ago. Um, and and from, the, from the time of the incident, which was shocking to watch, and it was caught on video, uh, there, have, there has been an investigation by the SIU. There were charges laid. There was a preliminary inquiry. There was a full-blown trial in front of a jury that was covered by the media extensively, where we got to hear all the witnesses under cross-examination. And the jury came back with, with a finding of guilt on, 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 uh, an, on attempt murder for Silo did his time he's already been paroled he's out already so now nine years later plus we're having this inquest and jerry i didn't do the math but i can't i can't imagine there has to be at least 10 coroners inquests in this province that have taken place relating to the police using deadly force on individuals and individuals with mental health issues we've got these recommendations already i don't know what new recommendations are going to come out and he raises a great Point. What could we possibly learn going over this ground again? Well, I can think of a few things. And uh, frankly, I'm not, sh I'm not a big fan of coroner's inquest. I'm particularly not a big fan of the jury process in a coroner's inquest, because I'm not sure what a panel of people like me can add to the question. Get a professional coroner uh, to look at the case and come up with some recommendations. Maybe there'd be less than 30, and uh, therefore they'd be more likely to be followed. When you have more than five recommendations, nobody pays attention to any of them. But here's what I'd love the coroner's inquest to look into. I would love it to look into, because so far all we focused on is whether James Fursillo, the police officer, was guilty or not guilty. And so all of the evidence was with regard to that. What else could we learn? Well, how did Sammy Yatim get to be on that streetcar in that state of mind? Had the system failed him somewhere? In which case, how? 
Had he done this before? Was this a freak occurrence? Like, what can we learn to prevent somebody else from being in such a state that they become a threat to public safety and the police have to engage them and a horrific outcome ensues? But I'd also like the coroner's inquest, and here's where I don't know if they'll go too deep, and I think they should. Somebody needs to. What were all the other police officers doing there? If you watch the video, Forsillo arrives with his partner. He is the junior member of the pair. His partner, a senior officer to him, also a constable, but she also draws her gun and then holsters it because she does clearly not perceive a threat. She doesn't take command. She allows Forsillo to carry on escalating the situation to the point that shots are fired within seconds. There are also very quickly other police officers uh, appear, some of them senior in rank and experienced to Forsillo. Why did none of them intercede? Why did none of them take control of the scene? After Yatim is dead and laying in the streetcar, a sergeant boards from the back door of the streetcar and tases the body with the taser. Why did that happen? What was that sergeant intending to accomplish? I would love the coroner's inquest to look at that because I think the police procedures failed us. And I think we're seeing in the Public Order Commission in Ottawa that a lot of police procedures don't work very well. And I'd like somebody to look into that. My name is Mark Tui. The show is News Talk Today. When we come back, when can you test somebody for cannabis? Because it seems we've got the process all wrong. It's what's happening right now. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, it's Mark Tui with you this afternoon. Uh, so glad to have a chance to talk with you. I'd love to hear from you if you have a problem in your workplace with cannabis use. Do people use cannabis before, after, or during coming to work in a way that causes an issue in your workplace? I think it's a problem. I think it's a bigger problem than we expected it to be. Uh, let me know. one 855 And you can text me at 71010 as well. I'll tell you, I live uh, in a large uh, condo tower community. And uh, there's a little park in amongst the condo towers. And there's a whole bunch of construction going on with new high-rise towers going up. And every day at coffee break and every day at lunch, workers in, ironically, in safety helmets and safety vests with hard-toed safety boots and safety belts attached to them come down from the towers, crawl down from these huge construction cranes, and sit in the park, have their lunch, and smoke a joint. And then they go back up the towers and back up operating the cranes and lifting heavy things out over traffic to build these huge condo towers. I think that's a problem. I, I don't think that's safe. There's a case out of uh, British Columbia ruling uh, in from the Labor Relations Board that just makes me shake my head. It refers to a case that's three years old, May 30th of 2019, a worker at the Vancouver shipyards, a place where they move heavy machinery, they build big things. Uh, this worker was be acting as the safety spotter for another employee driving a modular transporter, and while under the supervision of this employee, the transporter collided with some scaffolding at the end of the dock. No one was injured, there was only minor damage, but as part of the, the, the company's policy, they tested the worker for drugs and alcohol, they found him positive for drugs, marijuana, 
he then spoke with the uh, medical uh, officer and learned that he had used uh, marijuana at 8 o'clock the night before his shift. The company doesn't have a policy about off-duty use. and uh, they. Uh, but because of the positive test... They uh, required, they suspended him for 10 days, and they required him, he agreed, to undergo random drug testing for a year. He then, his union took this to the Labor Relations Board. The Labor Relations Board said this was wrong. It violated his rights. The Labor Relations Board ordered the 10-day suspension to be reversed, that he would be awarded $15,000 in damages, and that the random drug monitoring was a violation of his human rights. Surely to goodness, an employer must be within their rights to test workers in safety-sensitive positions in order to make sure that they're capable of doing their job. What is the law on this? Well, to help us answer that, Sanera Chaudhry joins me. She's a Toronto-based employment lawyer and founder of Workly Law. Sanera, welcome to News Talk today. Surely the employer is in its rights to do this or not. I'm going to have to disagree with you, Mark. I mean, I think we have to frame the conversation as one that should be you know, sort of entrenched in privacy and allowing employers a line of sight into the private life of their employees is going to be, I think, the the slippery slope argument here. We have a worker who says that he engaged in recreational cannabis, which was legal at the time, the night before. Um, Of course, it was against employee uh, policy or the employer policy here for him to have a positive urine test, I think, after this accident occurred. But clearly, it's up to an employer to outline when and how you may use um, recreational drugs, um, especially if it's an occupational requirement. So I hear you on the fact that this is a worker, this is a safety spotter. I mean, if there was one uh, case that you think an employer might be in the clear to take all the way to the Labor Relations Board, this would probably be the one, obviously. But I think when it comes to the employer policy, not really dictating the process, the procedure around when and if you can engage in the recreational use of drugs and or alcohol when it comes to your shift, uh, that the, that was the downfall here. So they sort of lived and died by their employee policy on the use of drugs. So if they had had a much more draconian policy that said you may not use cannabis within 24 hours of coming on your shift, and if you are found to be positive, uh, you will be fired, they would have been within the rights to do that? Wow, Mark, you just wrote the policy they probably needed. Seriously. <laughs> you know, like, and actually, I have seen policies drafted by construction companies, developers, um, where there is this a a huge safety element to the role. Factory workers often have to um, abide by a really strict drug and alcohol policy. It could be 24 hours. It could be 48 hours. um, It can depend. I've certainly been on, I've certainly represented clients that have been on the receiving end of tough drug policies, and ultimately, these policies have to be reasonable. So even if an employer wants to um, impose a policy that infringes on the private life of an employee and what they do in their recreational time, it has to be reasonable. So it's probably not reasonable 
to suggest to a worker who's doing, you know, 90% of their job behind a desk to impose, you know, sort of any limitations on what they can do recreationally because it probably won't pose a safety risk. But, but if your uh, job I, requires you to wear a hard hat and safety glasses and wear a safety vest and hard-toed boots and to be strapped in to a, uh, a, a you know a, a safety harness, surely to goodness we don't want you to be drunk or under the influence of anything, and that's fair. Yeah, absolutely. But I think the other uh, the other way the employer could have taken this is that if there were damages right as a result of this incident, let's say that the, if there were, God forbid another employee getting injured or there was an, there was some kind of damage to company or client equipment, um, there is a route that an employer could take, which is if you're showing up to work uh, under the influence of alcohol or drugs, you know it's an implied term of your employment agreement. You shouldn't be showing up to work um, in that state. We've now suffered a loss. An employer can go ahead and sue for the damages that it's incurred, even if it even if it doesn't have a policy that sort of speaks to it. So, so going, I think, down the road that you that that you're suggesting, I think you're absolutely right that an employer can suggest we've incurred some damages here. It was within our right to expect you to show up to work um, to be able to do your eight-hour shift with the capacity to do so. You showed up incapacitated. Now we're going to sue you for damages. I think where the employer fell down here is that they imposed a 10-day suspension. Um, they didn't actually take the hard line with a worker that they probably had to um, in order to avoid going to the Labor Relations Board, which is they, they could have taken sort of a tougher road, suggesting, you know, we so, incurred some damage here, which, you know, they didn't end up, I don't think they ended up actually alleging. So the lesson for employers here is don't go halfway. If this is truly, if you're in a safety-sensitive position, make a policy that is tough enough and leaves no question unanswered. I, yes, and I think the other issue, Mark, that I just want to frame is, of course, there's a human rights component to all of this, right? The use of drugs and alcohol, when employers get into that arena, um, of course, you're also dealing with the issues of addiction, right? So you have to, uh, as an employer, actually ride a very sort of thin line when it comes to imposing a policy, but also understanding that you might be dredging up um, a lot of accommodation yeah. requests when it comes to the use of alcohol, when it comes to the use of drugs, even when it comes to smoking. So, so the use of an addictive um, you know, drug could land an employer in, in the hot seat where it would have to accommodate a worker as a result of an addiction. Sinera Chaudhry, a Toronto-based employment lawyer and founder of Workly Law, thanks for your time today. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, so I think you have to have a very clear policy. Lots of people texting in saying, hey, I'm a habitual uh, marijuana user, been doing it for 20 years, I don't get high, uh, I get a prescription, uh, I don't get... That's just BS. I mean, that's like a, a drunk driver saying, hey, I've been using alcohol every day of my life, I don't get drunk. B BS, that's just not true. You may not think you're high, you may not think your judgment's impaired, but it is. Mark Tuohy, the show is News Talk Today. Keeping you informed daily. 
It's News Talk today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hi, welcome back. It is Mark Tui with you this afternoon. Such a pleasure to talk with you. Lots of people texting in uh, telling me how ignorant I am of the effects of uh, cannabis on people and how that they can smoke uh, and it doesn't affect them. And uh, oh my God, give it a rest. I have worked and uh, you know, with addicts of many different substances and drugs, and I have known many others, and each and every single one of them at all times has sworn up and down that their drug didn't affect their performance, and each and every one of them was woefully impacted by the drug. They just don't know it because they live inside their head and they see the world through their drug-addled eyes. That's just the way it is. And you know what? If you use cannabis as a medical prescription, good for you. But there are a lot of medical conditions that prevent you from doing safety-sensitive jobs, and probably you shouldn't have one. Anyway, I'm going to change gears because this is a fascinating story I found of the Vancouver Sun. Uh, it, it starts like this. Something happened on the B.C. coast last month that was so serious, it sent shockwaves through the entire Canadian food system, forced a dozen freight trains to stop on the prairies, each one loaded with thousands of tons of newly harvested wheat, barley, and canola headed for world markets in the midst of a global food crisis. Grain elevators filled up with crops, bulk cargo ships waited at docks or anchored off the coast, adding big belching ice cores to the ocean views from Salt Spring. Well, who cares? about the ocean view from Salt Spring. But the cost of food is a big issue. Global hunger is a big issue. So what could possibly have happened such a draconian event that would cause the system to grind to a halt? Well, it rained in Vancouver. It's something that it does 165 days each and every year, but on each and every day that it rains in Vancouver, they stop loading grain at the nation's biggest seaport. How is that possible? My guest uh, to help me understand if that is even possible is uh, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, the food professor. He's senior director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab, professor in food distribution and policy at Dalhousie University. Dr. Sylvain, Dr. Charlebois, how can rain in Vancouver cause everything to stop? Well, a lot of things in Vancouver can actually trigger something. <laughs> Since last year, there's been uh, atmospheric rivers, heat domes. Uh, yeah, I mean, these logistical entanglements, if you will, uh, do happen from time to time. We, we are reporting them more often because people are sensitive to supply chains. Who would have thought? Yeah, nobody talked about supply chains before pandemic, but it became a big issue. But, I mean, Vancouver, I lived in the west coast of British Columbia. Rain is a fact of life. It's a normal, 165 days a, a year it rains in Vancouver. And Vancouver, unlike ports in the rest of the world, for some reason cannot load grain in the rain. What's different about Vancouver? Well, I mean, it, it gets messy, but the other thing that you have to keep in mind is quality, the quality of grains. If the grain itself becomes uh, has too much moisture, it will impact the grading of the grain, and buyers tend not to like that. So you want to protect the product as much as possible, and if it, if it rains too much, it, it could compromise the quality. So you got to be careful. It will impact the value of the product, 
Uh, and, and sometimes actually buyers will just decide not to buy the product at all. And so that's, th- those are the things you have to keep in mind when you are shipping grains abroad. So I guess the issue is getting, uh, the grain can't get wet, because if it gets wet, you load it on a ship, presumably it will get moldy, uh, that would become a problem. But there must be a way to load grain from a train into a ship without it getting wet. Of course. And yeah, why don't we do that? There are different technologies. You can actually uh, you know, make sure that uh, grains remain indoors or covered for the whole process. But it goes back to how equipped we are with, uh, with, um, with logistics in Canada overall. That's the problem that, that we have in Canada is that we haven't really invested all that much into systems, capacity. Uh, the other thing, just to give you an idea, for example, uh, sometimes the Vancouver port is the go-to place out west, but the, the third largest port in Canada is is in Prince Rupert, just up north. And and the pathway towards Asia is actually easier. There's less disruption. And you could actually equip that port as well. Its capacity is an issue. But we ne- we've never actually thought about logistics strategically in this country. Now, a couple of months ago, uh, we saw uh, our national task force on supply chain submit a report. It was a really, really good report. And in that report, uh, there, there, there is a discussion around investing um, in ports and making our, our rail system more resilient and, of course, climate resilient as well. So I guess, I mean, on the technology side, from what I understand, uh, you know, on a, on a clear, sunny day, it's easy. The, the, the grain comes in uh, by train. It probably gets onto a conveyor belt. It gets sort of fired into the air, lands in an open hatch in the, in the, in the boat. But when it rains, of course, that can't be. But if it had a covered conveyor belt, I guess that's an issue. But also there's a human labor component, I understand, and a union and safety concern that having, uh, you know, the the workers climb up on top of these things to open and close hatches and to attach stuff on metal in the rain is a safety hazard, they argue, although it seems to happen in European ports quite well. Uh, but uh, is this is this a function, Sylvain Charlebois, of when, grain, when stuff was cheap, you know, we could afford to add cost by delays. But when stuff is very expensive, those incremental costs become unaffordable. Absolutely, and so supply chains have to uh, be uh, become better equipped to deal with these things. And, and let's face it, climate is is going to be a continuing issue no matter what. Uh, I mean, I don't know what. Uh, I mean, the weather. I was actually in Toronto just yesterday. It was a little bit cooler, but the, a couple of weeks before it was super nice, very hot, and you can see that really things are changing. And so. Uh, and, and rains and, and, and snowstorms will also impact uh, how companies, logistical companies work. So we have to think about all of these things. And at the end of the day, uh, well, uh, it will allow Canada to export more higher quality products and import products from abroad as well. So who should bear the cost for this? I mean, it's going to add, I mean, more technology, more labor, safe, more safety is inevitably going to increase the cost. At some point, I guess there's a tipping point where it's cheaper to invest than it is to, to delay. Uh, but does that just drive up the cost of the product? 
Well, exactly. Going back to the uh, task force report, what what it, it does uh, suggest is to actually have a is to adopt a, a more coordinated effort between uh, layers of government and industry as well. So some of these things are are, are addressed. The thing about uh, supply chains that uh, supply chains are rarely uh, they rarely operate under one jurisdiction. It involves many stakeholders. So you, you have to have one central place in order for all of these players to talk amongst each other and, and look at who's paying for what and agree on a, a very long-term plan. And when I say long-term in logistics, we're talking about 30 years. Is that a role that for that government, here. and are they doing that? Oh, of course. Well, the Minister of Transport actually asked for that task force. I'm hoping that someone will actually, in government, will actually read the report because it's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good, it's a, it's a really solid roadmap. And I, I, and I'm hoping that provinces, cities, companies uh, will consider this roadmap as, as being serious. Dr. Sylvain Chalabaugh, Canada's food professor, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, this is just mind-blowing. I mean, it rains in Vancouver. Everybody, even people who've never been to Vancouver, know that it is infamous for rain. And so the idea that the Port of Vancouver stops shipping grain whenever it rains more than half the year is ludicrous. Other countries, other ports, other places that rain just as much, they don't. So we need to figure this out because it's only going to become more problematic because people want to eat. And it turns out there are more and more people on this planet wanting to eat the greedy buggers every single day. We just hit 8 billion people on this planet, according to the UN. What does that mean for you and me? Find out next on News Talk Today. It's News Talk today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Man, we talked about uh, shipyards and cannabis use. Then we talked about shipyards and rain and the inability to ship grain to hungry people around the planet when it's wet in Vancouver. And now we learn from the UN that today, although I don't think there's anybody standing in uh, maternity wards around the planet with a little clicker, but today the UN uh, is projecting we will top 8 billion human beings on this planet we call Earth, which is which is more than a handful. That's a lot of people. Uh, between 1804 and 1927, that's 123 years, the population of this planet grew from 1 billion to 2 billion. It then took 33 years after that to add another billion, to reach three billion. Since then, it's taken 12 and a half years to add another billion people. And in the UN's Population Prospects Report, uh, they're projecting that the population will reach eight and a half billion by 2030. That's only eight years from now. They're saying we should have reached sometime today the eight billionth living human being uh, should be born if they haven't been born already. After 2030, we'll be 9.7 billion by 2050. In the 2080s, we'll hit 10.4 billion and then maybe level off until 2100. What happens after then? I don't know. A man who has studied it is my guest. Daryl Bricker is the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, but he's also, I don't know whether he would call himself this, but he's a bit of a demographer. Uh, and he wrote uh, a fascinating book called Empty Planet, The Shock of Global Population 
decline, which is not where you expect uh, that sentence to end. Daryl, welcome to News Talk today. Thanks for having me on, Mark. So the the UN projects the population of the Earth is going to keep growing up until uh, basically 2100. Your book talks about a phenomenon where maybe that isn't the case, but I can't remember your timeline. Are we on an ever-expanding, this planet is going to just continue adding more human beings to it until we explode? Well, based on what we're, we know about the population, because, by the way, for your listeners, most of the decisions about what our future are gonna, is going to look like have already been made in terms of the structures of your family and the number of kids that you want to have. So we're just kind of living these things out now. And um, what's, uh, what we see in the data is that probably we're going to be peaking uh, in between somewhere between 8 and 9 billion. Uh, very, very unlikely we'll ever get to the 10.4 billion that the UN is estimating by the end of uh, end of the century. And the reason for that is because we've just stopped having kids. And is that a global phenomenon, or are there sort of? Uh, I know in Canada, you know, if it wasn't for immigration, our population would surely be in decline. But there must be other places uh, in Africa and Asia where that's not the case. Yeah, they still are having kids, but they're having fewer kids than they used to. I was uh, just uh, uh, talking to the South uh, Africa Broadcasting Corporation. They were asking me about this, and I I just, you know, by chance looked up the data. So the birth rate of South Africa today is 2.3. So replacement rate, just to replace the number of people that are dying in a country every year, each woman during her lifetime has to have 2.1 kids. Uh, In South Africa today, it's 2.3. In 1960... And this is based on the the UN's data. It was 6.2. So it's come down by almost three kids in the space of less than 60 years, or around 60 years. So uh, what's happened is even in places that we think that there's a lot of kids being born, there actually isn't. I mean, India, for the first time last year, dropped below that 2.1 number to 2.0. China, the largest country in the world, and probably no longer the largest country in the world, their birth rate's only 1.2. So what's happened is we've really stopped having kids, and most of the population growth is not a product of new people coming into the population. It's, it's older people not dying as fast as they used to. Damn those oldies. Yeah, in Canada, just to give you a great Canadian example, the, the, the average age a Canadian would live back in the 1920s was 57. Today, they live to the age of 82. So that's what's responsible for population growth. It's not like tons and tons and tons of kids are being born, way more than in the past. It's just that their grandparents aren't leaving this mortal coil as quickly as they used to. So a lot of the the projections of uh, global apocalypse and uh, a lot of our uh, forecast models on things like climate change and the horrific impact it's going to have on humanity, I think are presupposing that uh, this population growth is going to grow the way the UN says it will grow. If that's not the case... Does that give us more wiggle room to actually figure out some problems with a little bit more time? Well, I'm not a, a climate change expert, but um, maybe on climate it uh, d- does, you know, if you change the denominator in the equation, that's the number of people on the earth, maybe it has some effect. But I think the bigger question, uh, Mark, is how we're going to deal with what's staring us right in the face, which is rapid population aging. So it's not just that the population structure, it's not just the size of the population is going to change or is changing, it's that the structure of the population is changing. So we have a lot fewer younger people and a lot more older people, which means that uh, has tremendous implications for the economy, but it also has tremendous implications for things like public services, demands on things like health care, caring for people with dementia. You know, for example, nobody's really prepared to deal with this level of change that's going to happen as a result of population aging. 
And you can almost mark it on the calendar. By the year 2030, well, you can mark it on the calendar. <laughs> By the year 2030, the entire baby boom in Canada, and we'll just deal with Canada, is going to be 65 years of age or older. The entire baby boom. Wow. And so not only the, the age sort of breakdown of population, but the geographic distribution, if we're having still, even though there are fewer babies being born in developing countries, they're still growing faster than us. At what point does it become, you know, an issue economically and and from a a strategic perspective where most of the population is living in different places than they were 20 years ago? Well, it's, it's it's a strategic and economic issue today. So if you look at the only place that's producing um, uh, large populations, uh, the population's growing uh, at a rapid rate than any place else, it's Africa. So this century is going to be a, a century that's going to be increasingly defined by India, which is probably now the world's largest, most populous country, and Africa. Uh, China is slated, even in the UN's models, to lose a significant amount of its population over the course of this century. In fact, I think that you know, credible modeling is now showing that it owns about half. Will that be good news for the average uh, you know, Chinese citizens? That, are they going to be more middle class, or is, is that going to affect, push more people into poverty? Oh, I, I, think, I think it's tremendously disruptive. We've never dealt with anything like this in the past before, where huh. a population due to choice is basically going to put itself you know, cut its numbers by half. And, and, you know, imagine that if we were walking down the streets of Toronto, if it was happening here, every second person that you're walking by would be gone. So you might say that there's benefits associated with that, and there probably are. But the population that remains is going to be much, much older. So that's, that's really the, the future that we're looking at. And while, I, you, know, I, um, you know, the UN comes out today and talks about 8 billion, I mean, the implication is, you know, that the world can't sustain this population. Well, no, that's going to end very soon, and they should be really clear about that. And, and they're not clear enough, in my view. And then the second thing that they should really focus on is what's actually happening to the structure of the population, which is this rapid aging that's going on. And that's going to present a whole series of, of issues that basically nobody's talking about, but they're staring us right in the face. Lots of food for thought. Daryl Bricker, thanks for your time today. Thank you, Mark. Daryl Brooker is CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. They do lots of research about people. He's the author of Empty Planet, The Shock of Global Population Decline. Highly recommend it. It's a fascinating read because it does sort of turn the tables on some of the most uh, common assumptions to how our population is going to grow. And as Daryl was just pointing out, that leads to a bunch of other questions that we need to ask and answer before they become an issue. We're going to take a short break here on News Talk today. When we come back in the next hour, we'll catch up with the uh, inquiry in Ottawa, RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky on the stand. What has she told us? Here's what you need to know. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, it's Mark Tui. Thanks for listening in. And one of the things that you need to know, although you probably don't need to follow it minute by minute, word for word, 
is the unfolding drama in Ottawa where the Public Order Emergency Commission is going through events leading up to the Declaration of the Emergencies uh, Act or the Invocation of the Emergencies Act during the uh, convoy protest. A lot of uh, us can't follow it in real time, even though we're interested in it. So what I'd love to do is to sort of give us a bit of a an update, a little snapshot at what we might have missed. And fortunately for you and I, there are experts... Uh, journalists like Glenn McGregor, senior political correspondent for CTV News, uh, who uh, are following this word for word, day by day, hour by hour. And there are many hours and many days and many witnesses. Uh, Glenn, uh, welcome to News Talk today. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, I have to listen to this plotting testimony day after day so you don't have to. Yes, and I very much thank you for that. (laughs) And when you say unfolding drama, it's quite often it's like unfolding laundry. It's not exactly (laughs) edge of your seat kind of drama. We're getting like little dribs and drabs every hour, every day. This is not like, you know, the O.J. Simpson trial here where there's some aha moment. Uh, The information that's coming out about this is pointillistic. It comes in little pieces, and uh, it's often uh, contradictory. Uh, Somebody says one thing, somebody says another. We're getting a lot of different perspectives on this, but let's, you know, boil this down to what this is all about. Was the federal government justified? Did they make the right decision based on the information they had at the time on February 14th to use this rare power to invoke the Emergencies Act uh, in order to end the occupation in Ottawa, also, to a certain extent, ensure that the blockades in Windsor, Ontario, at the Ambassador Bridge didn't come back, and also deal with a blockade in Coots, Alberta, at the border crossing right. to the United States. So that's kind of what it's all about. Uh, and we've had a lot of different different points of view on this. Um, yes. But the, the kind of emerging theme seems to be that nobody in police, including Brenda Lucky, who was on the, the commissioner of the RCMP, was on the stand today, has said yes, we absolutely needed you to do this. Right. So yesterday there was some interesting stuff, and and I'm not following it like you are, but there seems to be information emerging from the testimony that's happening in real time, as well as documents that that may precede the testimony of witnesses. Yesterday, what I thought jumped out to me that I thought was interesting before we get to Brenda Lucky today was a commentary from some senior civil servants in the public safety uh, ministry talking about at least their impression, or maybe these were documents related to CSIS, the National Spy Agency, saying that they they didn't consider the convoy to be a national security threat, but their definition was quite narrow. That's right. You're talking about a guy named Rob Stewart. He's the deputy minister, so essentially the top bureaucrat. He's not elected. He's appointed to his job in the public safety department. Uh, And yes, that was his view based on his read of of something called the CSIS Act. So that's the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, the piece of legislation that sets it up, and it defines what it considers to be a threat to uh, national security. And in his view, what was happening on the streets of Ottawa in Windsor and Alberta and also in Emerson, Manitoba, didn't meet that standard. But that's not necessarily the test that the Prime Minister used and his Cabinet Ministers used when they decided to invoke the Act. And it may not be the test that the Commissioner, who's presiding Mm -hmm. over these weeks of testimony, will ultimately use when he's going to have to issue 
uh, not a decision, but a report on, on this and say whether or not that was the lens that she should have interpreted through. A lot of conflicting opinion about, you know, was this truly a threat to national security? I mean, obviously this was not 9-11, right? Uh, but it caused a lot of disruption at the border points. That's an economic threat. There was a lot of concern being expressed. We heard some of that yesterday about how this was going to affect our trade relationship with the United States because the Americans were getting freaked out by seeing the Ambassador Bridge blockaded because our auto industries are so integrated across the border, and that's the choke point there where you know uh, tens of millions of dollars of goods go back uh-huh. and forth every day. Uh, it affects industries on both sides. So the Americans were worried, so there's a question of whether it's a threat to your uh, economic security uh, as well, if not just uh, national security. These are all things the commissioner is going to have to weigh when he decides whether or not the government was justified uh, in invoking the act. Yeah, Glenn McGregor, today, as you mentioned, RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky uh, is on the stand. I guess uh, at one point she was asked and she suggested that the federal government lost confidence in Ottawa's police ability to remove the convoy. She got the impression there was also a lack of confidence from deputy ministers, and she said this in response to a question. By the various comments about how come this is still going on? When is this going to end? How come it's getting bigger? So I was inferring from those comments, when is uh, Ottawa Police Service going to do some enforcement? Uh, when are they going to deal with this situation? Um, I could hear the impatience. I could, I could hear the frustration. And from that, I inferred that they were losing confidence. So that's sort of her impression of what somebody else said. Uh, My impression of what a lot of the police officers are saying is that maybe the emergency that required the Emergencies Act was the police just couldn't do their job. Yeah, exactly. And and I mean, you know, to take the, the federal government's position, this actually bolsters their case. We had the responding police force of jurisdiction in Ottawa, the Ottawa Police Force, was in largely in a state of chaos. Uh, yes, there was a great number of people in the city lost confidence in the police and also in the police chief, who uh, ultimately resigned uh, near the end of the convoy. Uh, and so the federal government says, okay, well, this is the police can't do their jobs, so this is why we're going to invoke the act. Was that the right decision? Uh, you know, people have different uh, views on that, uh, but certainly they. The people in the federal government, it sounds very much like they did not have any faith that Peter slowly could get this under control on his own. Uh, but they, and, and they, they, they could not direct uh, either the OPP, of course, because it's provincial, but or the RCMP to get involved and provide more resources. But that certainly was the implication was that Ottawa police can't do it alone. They certainly can't do it with Peter slowly in charge. And so they're going to need help. And that ultimately what happens is the OPP and the RCMP and the Ottawa police get together and they develop this plan in which they ultimately executed when we saw those pictures of the mounted police coming in and uh, the Sûreté de Quebec coming in and massive numbers. That's what ultimately shut down the Ottawa protest. As Lucky today is talking about that process. Right before it happens, she tells members of the federal cabinet that they have the existing tools already they don't need the Emergencies Act because police already have the powers to make arrests under these circumstances, and they've already been bolstered by Doug Ford's decision a few days earlier to declare a state of emergency in Ontario. So it's all very <laughs> opaque, and I can't really, you know, if I had to go out and make a, 
a bulldog bet on this, I would have no idea which way this is going to go. Like, I don't know which way the commissioner is going to go because you have information on either side. And, you know, I think generally this is all becoming kind of a sort of a case of confirmation bias. You know, every day we see people who are still in, involved in the convoy movement going, aha, you <laughs> see this piece of information? Uh, this proves our point. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe not. Yeah. Uh, it, it's hard to say. Yeah, I think, uh, Glenn McGregor, what my guess would be if I was going to, if I was forced to put money on this, I think it, the, the ultimate, the decision, as you pointed out, came down to cabinet. They were within their right to make it, but slowly they're losing the ability to point to evidence that sort of says, look, we did it because somebody else told us it was necessary. It will ultimately be their decision. I'm down to like seconds here. When will the prime minister take the stand? Do we know? I think we're thinking next week. He's probably in Asia right now. Of course, he's at the uh, G20 in Indonesia. He's also stopping in, in Thailand and then Tunisia for the Francophonie summit on his way back. So we expect to get him on the stand next week. That is going to be must-see TV. Yeah, absolutely. Glenn McGregor, senior political correspondent for CTV News. Thanks for doing the, uh, the dirty laundry folding for us so we don't have to. I appreciate your synopsis. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Yeah, this is, you know, I will say that I am not following this minute by minute, but I am following some journalists who are in the room on Twitter, and they are tweeting things, and it's a fascinating story. Like any court case, you know, you have to weave together all the fabric of the thread, and you can kind of probably weave it together to make a picture look like anything you want it to look like, but I'm finding it fascinating. When we come back, how often do you get paid, and why? Let me know, 855-633-1010. Staying on the story. News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, welcome back. It is Mark Tui with you this afternoon. I'm enjoying the conversation. I'd love to hear from you now at 855-633-1010. And I'd love to know how often do you get paid? If you're in a conventional job, do you get paid once a month? Do you get paid twice a month? First and the 15th. Do you get paid every two weeks? What's your payment schedule? And would you like it to be more often? That is what I'd love to hear from you at 1-855-633-1010. I, uh, reacting to a story in Fast Company magazine that talks about what is becoming a potential future revolution in how and how often we get paid. This especially in an environment where more and more of us work in the gig economy. You know, we take little projects here and there. That's what I do. You know, I do some teaching at a local university in the Toronto area. And for that, I get paid on a fairly, I think it's every two weeks, and they automatically pay me. It goes directly to my bank account. I do radio, for which I invoice the company. And, uh, you know, whenever I invoice them, plus a couple of weeks, I get paid, usually by check. Although I probably, if I wanted to, could have that direct deposited as well. How do you get paid? Because here's the thing. Uh, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics in the United States, so reports Fast Company Magazine, almost half of Americans are paid on a bi-weekly basis, so every 14 days, maybe every second Thursday, every second Friday, etc. And that came out of uh, 80 years ago when the U.S. government needed a way to efficiently collect payroll taxes, so they kind of pushed for payroll taxes to be submitted by employers every two weeks, which drove the employers to calculate them and therefore pay people every two weeks. 
would you like to get paid more often? Because there are companies out there, especially those that are affiliated with credit card companies, one of them Visa Direct, worked with a tech company to pay people because most of their workers are on demand. Hey, we have a project that needs to be done today. It's two hours of work. People didn't want to wait for an invoice to be cleared and for them a check to be cut. They wanted to be paid more efficiently. And so they are now being paid not in three to five, even three to five days after they've done the project based on an invoice. They're being paid in 30 minutes or less after doing the job. It goes direct into a card that accrues value that they can then tap into whenever they want it. And more and more companies are looking at ways to pay people more often. You could be paid every day for the work you did that day. You could be paid at the end of every shift, at the end of each project. Would you like that? Because I can see the benefit to that. It's my money. I've earned it. I want it now. Why should I have to wait 14 days? Why should I have to wait 15 days? Why should I have to wait 30 days? I want the money now because the bills come constantly. The car breaks down. The milk needs to be, you know, replenished. Uh, you know, I could see the attraction of that. But on the other side, if I was getting paid in dribs and drabs with $100 deposited into my bank account one day and 50 the next day and then nothing and then 150 I might not notice that and therefore I might just spend it. Unless I'm very disciplined at managing my money, I could see myself getting to the end of what would normally be a pay period and not having enough money still in my account to pay my rent. Or would I then be expected in the future world to pay my rent on a daily basis to my, my landlord? How often do you get paid? Would you love to be paid more often? And if so, how often would be best for you? Let's go to Montreal, talk to Anders. Go ahead, sir. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. How often do you get paid and would you like to be paid more frequently? I don't think I could get paid more often than I do. Um, I'm an arborist, so I run a tree uh, service in Montreal. Uh, I get paid at the end of each day when I finish a job. So you get paid directly uh, by customers? Yep. Okay. Either e-transfer or check or whatever or cash. Uh, but I will give you another example, though. Um, as you as you guessed from my, uh, my first name, my family is Danish. And in Denmark, they get paid at the last Thursday of every month, once a month except in December where they get paid in the middle of the month so they can go Christmas shopping. Now, do you have any employees that you have to pay? Yep. They, uh, they get, uh, it, it got too confusing to pay them at the end of every day because we were, you know, it was just to, to keep track of hours and stuff like that. I already have enough to manage. Excuse me. Um, so how often so now, do you pay them? At the end of each week. Yeah. Thanks very much, Anders. Yeah, no, I, I think most of us uh, are. I think the challenge for this, too, would be the employers. If you're in a retail business where you get where you sell a loaf of bread, you get the money for the loaf of bread. At the end of that shift, you could pay your employees because you have the money that you earned, perhaps. But if you're in a consulting business and you get paid uh, on an invoice on 30 days net, uh, you know, you might not, a small business might not have the money to pay people more often. Let's go to Hamilton. Andre, how often do you get paid and would you like it more often? Bi-weekly and no. <laughs> Why? I'd be okay. I well, I enjoyed it when I had I was paid by monthly. Well, by monthly, I was paid twice a month. I used to be paid on the fifteenth and the last day of the month, and I really liked that. Um, and I is that because you've set up your life to pay? Because you can pay your mortgage that way, or you can pay it biweekly. You'd have to switch it up if you changed. 
Well, yes and no, because for on my end of things, anyways, if I were to say allow them, if there were a way they would do it where it was just once a month on the last day of the month, I'd be okay with that as well. It's it's just how you structure your finances, and my finances are structured in a way that I don't touch my account. My wife does everything, so I'm happy. Yeah, you have to be fairly disciplined. Thanks very much for that. Let's talk with uh, Marcus uh, in Etobicoke. How often do you get paid? I get paid uh, bi-weekly, and that's exactly how I want to keep it. There was actually a moment in time where I made more money than I currently do, but I was being paid weekly. And I found that I was actually spending more money having it there. Is that because so you, I, like, like me, just look at your bank balance, and if there's money, you spend it? <laughs> well, well basically, like, the, the, way I, the way I had uh, structured, like, my life was around a, a bi-weekly pay schedule. So um, then, I, then I started uh, working at a job at one point that was paying me weekly, and I just found that my debit card was, like, glued to my hand in that process. Yeah, I could see that. Thanks very much for that. Uh, let's go to downtown Toronto talk with Kevin. Uh, you get paid twice a month. Would you like it to be more often, and would you have uh, to change your bank account? Because my bank account would charge me a fee every time uh, I put money in or take money out. It could get really expensive. Uh, no, but uh, I think the twice a month is doable for salary workers. I think there's two, two, two types of workers. One is... There's some workers that don't work for eight days, and then they get a big, and then they work, and then they get a big chunk, and then they don't work, and then they get a chunk, and then they don't. Those are the gig, the gig yep. economy. Some some get you know little pieces every day, Mark. But I think the big one is if you don't get paid right away on that. If you're a gig economy uh, worker, you could get in financial trouble if it has to do with mortgages heat, hydro, etc. Yeah, you really have to have customers that, thanks very much for your call, you have to have customers that are predictable, you know how long it's going to take for them to pay, because otherwise you become basically a financial institution. You're covering their debt for a certain amount of time. Last word on this goes to Bill in Bowmanville. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. I, I used to, been, my whole life I've been paid bi-weekly, now I'm working for a company that pays me weekly, and I love it. I think it is just an absolutely fantastically convenient thing because you don't have to always worry about that structure. Like, everything on the 15th has to go up then. Everything on the 30th has to go up. Like, now, my bills can go up whenever they want. It really makes no difference. That's good. What if you got paid every day? Would that be an improvement or more trouble than it's worth? I, probably more trouble than it's worth. I think the weekly is not a problem. I, every Thursday, I know I'm getting paid. So good yeah. thing. Thanks very much, Bill. I appreciate that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean... I would like to be paid more quickly from uh, people that I invoice because otherwise I become basically I'm I'm financing them. You know, they owe me money. I did the work. You know, at the end of a period, let's say every month I invoice. So on the first of the month, I do some work. On the 30th of the month, I send the invoice. Then it takes them another two weeks to a month to pay me if they're good clients. Some clients are not good clients, uh, and it takes a long time, and that's where you start to add things. So if they could, at least now with all the electronic means, they don't have to cut me a check. They can pay me much more quickly. And so get if I was just an employee at a coffee shop, would I want to be paid every day? Maybe, but if I was the owner of the coffee shop, that might be hard to do because I might not have the cash on hand every day in order to do that. So I think it opens up lots of options. When we come back, we'll revisit that question about cannabis. And those of you potheads out there can school me into thinking why you're not actually impaired on the job if you've been toking. 855-633-1010.
Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Is legal cannabis use a problem in your workplace? I'm going to revisit this topic because we got so much response on the tax board from people who wanted to call me an idiot that I'd love to have them call me. And call me an idiot because I'd love to have that conversation, one 1010 But really what I'd love to hear is, is this a problem, yes or no, in your workplace? Because cannabis is legal, has been now for some time. And so I think, here is what I will put out there, I don't think we have figured out how to manage it in many workplaces. If you work in a, well, if there was such a thing as a video store and you worked in a video store, if you work in a retail shopping, you know, corner store or something like that, maybe it doesn't matter if you're high. But if you work like the guys that I see at lunchtime around my condo, if you're working on the 52nd floor pouring concrete or maneuvering, you know, 15-ton HVAC units by crane out over traffic, over the heads of innocent civilians, and you're high, I think that's a safety problem. And I know it's a safety problem because the construction industry is trying to fix this. And yet I see some of those guys, not all of them, there's hundreds of people working there, but I see a half dozen same guys every day token away on their lunch breaks, wearing a safety helmet because their job is dangerous, wearing safety goggles because their job is dangerous, wearing safety boots because their job is dangerous, wearing a safety harness that they clip into a lifeline because their job is dangerous, smoking a fat reefer at lunch so they can get pleasantly buzzed before they go back up to the 65th floor to suspend concrete over my head. I think that is unsafe. And I don't think we have figured out how to manage that in all of our workplaces. I don't think you should be driving after using cannabis or alcohol or quaaludes or anything else that would impair your judgment. Now, lots of people texted in to say, I don't know what I'm talking about because they've used marijuana. Ron in Mississauga says, I've been smoking marijuana working for almost 20 years. It's not affected me at all. This guy, we were talking about a shipyard worker who was suspended, and then the Labor Relations Board ordered him reinstated and paid $15,000 in damages after he was the safety supervisor at a shipyard overseeing a, a vehicle moving around the shipyard. His job was to make sure it didn't crash into anything. It crashed into something. Nobody was hurt, thank God. No major damage, thank goodness. But the shipyard suspended him, and they started testing, and he was positive for cannabis. LRB, the Labor Relations Board, said, ah, that was a violation of his rights. Well, what about the rights of the people that could have been run over because he didn't do his job properly? Anyway, Ron goes on to say, this guy uh, is probably too new to marijuana. As a side note, uh, in the theory there and supported by a number of other texts that, well, people who are habitual users, they don't get affected the same way. And I'm thinking, you know what? I know habitual users of all sorts of drugs, including alcohol, and it's not that they're not high. It's that they're never sober. And they just don't know the difference. Uh, but others disagree. Steve, in uh, Tobermory, is there a problem with uh, the way we manage cannabis use? Because it's legal now, and it's hard for employers to figure out what you're allowed to, what you can't. But there are some jobs where you just can't be high. Hey, Mark. Uh, no, you're, you're absolutely right. So uh, my situation is six call centers from Niagara Falls to Mississauga, give or take 3,000 employees. My management team has an ongoing difficult task 
with hiring and firing people because people come back from lunch or in first thing in the morning. We run two shifts. And you can tell when people are high. Uh, they're not energetic. They're not keeping up with the calls that are forced through their uh, their terminal. Um, you know, they smell. You know, and so we have to let them go. Um, and in terms of navigating the environment for the Employment Standards Act, I still have to pay them severance. You know, back in the day, maybe two years ago, I tried to fire people and not pay them the severance if they were with me for a year, and it was found by the tribunal that I did owe them. And it was unlawful to fire them, even though they were smoking on the job. So we have to pay severance. Uh, it's just cost of doing business these days. But there is absolutely a problem, Mark. And just lastly, people who believe that they're able to smoke and carry on in a normal life environment, whether it be work or at home, are operating in a bubble. If you step outside that and look at these people, they clearly can't. The whole point of, you know, using cannabis other than for medical use, and even then, quite frankly, it's affecting your judgment, and your judgment is affected when you think your judgment is not affected. 100%. (laughs) Thanks, Steve. Let's go to John in Scarborough. You're a landscaper. Is that a problem in your business? Johnny, Johnny, how are you doing today, my man? Call me Mark. Just oh, Mark, between sorry us. about that. Hey, yeah, John. <laughs> hey, listen, I got, a, I got, you know, the guy was kind of bang on there before, and there's rights and there's laws. I've even heard it on CP24 with uh, Fertan Cernino or whatever his name was, right? But, hey, listen, I got this about, uh, I run a landscaping company. It's not mine, but I drive people around. They actually work better when they're buzzed out. Would you let them drive around? No, no, no. They don't drive the trucks or anything, but they're, you know what I mean? They're, I put it to each their own. If something happens, you explain, right? Yeah, and I and think there are some I, jobs where it's not an issue, but I think if you're in a safety-sensitive job, I don't think you can be impaired in any way. And, and the thing is, too, is I don't want to cause arguments with people. I've, you know, I've smoked back in the day, too, and I know I understand, but at the end of the day, it's uh, you got to use your discrepancy and common sense, right? Fair enough. Thanks very much. Let's go to Jim in Scarborough. Does cannabis use in the workplace, now that it's legal, is it is it a problem someplace? Uh, I would I would certainly say that, uh, like, I, I used to smoke for quite a while, and uh, I've recently recently cut, cut it out of my life, and I was certainly someone who wouldn't say you could do everything under the influence, but I would certainly felt that I was influenced less than I probably was. And I know I didn't go at work because I worked in the in the uh, construction industry. It was uh, afterwards or whatever. I felt no, no, I, I wasn't. I wasn't inhibited. But since I've quit, my cloudy headedness at the end of the day, remembering the w- exactly how yesterday went, where we're starting off, I can certainly say that there's been a noticeable difference. But to say that you're not impaired, the whole point of of what we're doing, and most of the time when you're smoking as a young kid, was was who could get more messed up. <laughs> so to try and say, like, that's, that's not what it is. Like, yeah. the whole basis of it was who could smoke the bigger or, or who could smoke more or, you know what I mean? So it, it's, it's the same with the competitive thing you do when you have beers with your boys. Yeah, and uh, thanks very much, uh, Jim. I think you raise a good point. I, I, the whole point of, like, I fired a guy once in the military who turns out was an alcoholic and we fired him for performance. He just wasn't doing his job. And I met him six months later at a restaurant and spoke with him and he thanked me. He said it was the best thing that ever happened to him. And I had never known him sober. I didn't realize that he was because he was a functioning alcoholic. He was always drunk, but I didn't really notice it that much until I saw him sober. And then noticed the difference. And he said, you know, if it, uh, you know, he was drunk every single day. And that was what was causing the performance problem. 
Uh, last word on this, uh, Derek, in Montreal, you're an employer. Is this a problem? Absolutely, and we have a policy if anyone is uh, considered to be stoned or even have been drinking while working, uh, whether it's at lunch before, uh, that's it. They're let go. There's no flexibility. I don't know about Ontario, but in Quebec now, they have they passed the law that the owner of a company can be held criminally responsible for any injuries that could happen because of a, that they're aware of that could be a risk. Yeah, I can only, like, you have to have insurance, and this this shipyard that was forced to take this employee back and, and pay them money, like, they're responsible for the safety of all their other employees, and so if they can't but, but, test but, for in, marijuana, it's a problem. In Quebec, it's not just to have insurance, you are criminally responsible. Yeah. I, as an owner of a business, if my guy is stoned and drives a car into somebody, I could be going to jail, so I'm not taking that chance. Yeah, fair enough. Thanks very much, uh, Derek. I appreciate it. In the case in the uh, shipyard in Vancouver, the labor I, we talked with an employment lawyer earlier in the show, and basically it sounded like the policy that the employer had was not well-conceived, and it was the policy that got them afoul of the Labor Relations Board. If they had had a much stricter policy that laid out, here's what you can do, here's when you can do it, here's when you can't do it, they probably would have been fine. But they were taking kind of, a, oh, well, you know, you're be reasonable. No, you can't expect people to be reasonable when it comes to drugs and alcohol. You have to be prescriptive and it has to be a reasonable policy, but you have to rigorously enforce it. When we come back, how long does it take to walk across Canada? We'll find out from a woman who just did it. the politicians and pundits to account. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, it's Mark Tui with you this afternoon. Thanks for listening along. If you've missed anything during the show, you want to listen back to any part of the show or you want to download it, you can subscribe to the News Talk Today podcast on the iHeartRadio app or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Keep listening uh, as uh, the iHeartRadio will continue after the show. But this story I thought was uh, fascinating. Samantha Pope, the uh, producer, found it. I'm uh, familiar with the Trans-Canada Trail only because I once worked for Canada Trust, which used to exist as a separate company. And one of their in philanthropic uh, programs was to help fund the Trans-Canada Trail. And so I know theoretically about it. I know that it is uh, 28,000 kilometers long, I think. Uh, yep, and connects all three of Canada's oceans and 15,000 communities across the country. But not once have I ever thought, Maybe I should walk that trail, because that's 28,000 kilometers, folks. How long would that take? Well, my next guest can answer that question. German hiker Melanie Vogel uh, became the first woman to walk coast to coast to coast across Canada, completing an incredible five-year journey from Newfoundland to Victoria. On Saturday, she got to the Pacific Ocean and before she wanted to talk to well-wishers, she had one thing she needed to do. <laughs> Thank you for coming out. Oh. Thank you for coming out. And uh, I have something left to do, and that is taking my shoes off and going into the water, I guess. <laughs> Toes in the water. Melanie Vogel joins us now. Melanie, welcome to News Talk today. 
Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> so it took you, this was a five-year endeavor, and when I saw it, and the first time mm -hmm. I read it, I thought, okay, well, she started, overall, it took her five years, but she probably came and went, and during pandemic, she probably went home and did whatever she was doing, then came back and finished. But no, like, you were, you've been doing this for the last five years. Um, not quite. Okay. Like, you, you are somewhat right. Um, uh, when the pandemic hit, I actually walked into the Yukon and then the Yukon shut down and the Northwest Territories shut their borders. So um, while I was, uh, uh, after three months able to walk the Yukon section of the Trans-Canada Trail, I still had to wait 1.5 years in the Yukon until the Northwest Territories would open their border to non-essential travel again. But you stayed in the Yukon. Yeah, basically. You didn't. Yeah. You didn't go to Germany. You didn't uh, come back to a big city and then pick that. Like to me, that's amazing. <laughs> a one and a half year side trip. What did you do for one and a half years in the Yukon? I've been there. There's not one and a half years worth of stuff to do. <laughs> it's actually quite funny what I did. Um, I did. I kind of stepped away a little bit from hiking and converted a, an old Chevy van into a camper van. <laughs> oh, that's cool. <laughs> And I also worked, I used that time to work at Eagle Plains, uh, which is a hotel right, uh, very close to the Arctic Circle. Because back then I thought that pandemic, that this pandemic would be just a short of, amount of time holding me back. And I was pretty convinced uh, that I would be able to uh, keep walk, uh, or go back to the trail April 2021. I did not know it would take another year until actually um, the border to the Northwest Territory would finally open again. Yeah, that's crazy. So uh, back before mm -hmm. you started, you started in Newfoundland. Why? Mm -hmm. Like, how did this pop in? Did you lose a bet in a bar contest or <laughs> like what prompted you to walk across Canada? You know, sometimes I joke around and say it. I had a little bit of a Forrest Gump moment. <laughs> no, but uh, seriously, um, um, I traveled quite extensively before this journey. And after my last journey, I thought, you know, why did I come back? Like, I, I wanted to go so badly back to the road. I um, I loved the life on the road. Like, the like I have such a um, longing for adventure and discovery. And um, so um, while I came back for uh, about three years um, to get financial stable again, I then, uh, um, during this time, I read about the Trans-Canada Trail, and it was in 2016 when I sat in my little apartment in Toronto and said, I'm going to hike that. I'm going to hike 24,000 kilometers of the Trans-Canada Trail. Um, and back then, um, yeah, I, I, I did not actually know what I really, truly signed up for. <laughs> I can only imagine. I mean, but okay, so this, the first thing that jumps to my mind is how could you afford to do that? I mean, most of us have to work to eat for five years. But I mean, you worked for a year and a half mm -hmm. in the Yukon. I get that. Mm -hmm. But are you like a billionaire from the tech industry? Or is like, how do you how do you afford to take five years out of your life to do this? Yeah, um, there's a lot of people who ask me the same questions, and I'm really happy to answer this. Um, first of all, I saved money for this journey, and actually, I planned um, when I planned for this journey, I thought it would take two years walking every day, 25 kilometers, but that's not how it goes. And uh, um, so, my funds would 
of course not last for the entire five years. So what happened is like I had my savings. Um, I also got a women's expedition grant from the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. Mm-hmm. Um, I had sponsors on my side and, um, and, and, and really it was um, the kindness and support of people all across the country that would support me in this endeavor um, like basically helping me out, wanting to be part of my journey, you know, in one way or another. And uh, so there were donations, even though I did not walk for a cause, and I made that very clear, but people said, no, this is for Hmm. having a dinner or, you know, buy some food. Yeah, so so this is how it all came to happen. So a short time left, uh, Melanie Vogel, but uh, what did you learn about Canadians on this trip? You must have met thousands. Oh, yeah. I, I will say I have friends now all across this country, from the Atlantic to the Arctic to the Pacific Ocean. And I found that this kindness of Canadians, I found this to be the true soul or the true character of, of Canada. Like, the way people reached out and wanting to help, I, it was just... Ups- like, I did not know when I stepped on the trail that this would become a major talking point in my entire journey. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. And uh, what's next for you? Are you going to take some time off or are you going to fly back to Yukon, get your camper van and start uh, camping across the continent? Sort of. Um, but I also would love to see my family back in Germany that I haven't seen in eight <laughs> years. So so ideally I would go home for Christmas. And then also um, there is a book in, in the works. So because like you cannot walk five years across a country and then not write about it. <laughs> That'll yeah. be awesome. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I look forward to reading the book. Thank you so much for your time and uh, well done. Uh, what an amazing journey. I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Yeah. Melanie Bye-bye. Vogel is a, a German hiker, uh, started uh, living in Toronto, decided she would walk across Canada. And uh, boy, I hope she was wearing a Fitbit because apparently it was something like 26 million steps. That ought to do you, I think, for the rest of your life, quite frankly. I mean, that you should get future credit for that. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Thanks to Samantha Pope for producing the show. Thanks to Tony Tedesco for uh, running the board, taking your calls. And uh, thanks to you for listening and contributing. Don't forget, you can check out iHeartRadio.com for podcasts and listen again to the show tomorrow. Stick around. The iHeartRadio Talk Network continues. My name is Mark Tui. This is News Talk Today.